Amen. Today we are in James chapter 4 and verses 11 through 17. If you're a guest with us, we're just working our, we, we read through the Bible and we re- pick a book and we work through it and you happen to have joined us at this particular point in uh, James' letter. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? James chapter 4 from verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? To judge your neighbor. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, You boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So in our passage for today, James returns to the power of the tongue and our our inclination to harm uh, our brothers and sisters with the words that we speak. And he's really expounding on a proverb that Solomon gave us, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So death, and you will eat the fruit of death. What a warning we should take from that. But also, if you sow life, you will reap the fruit of life. And what a promise we find in that. Amen? We should cling to that one. What a, uh, what a promise that should motivate us to speak words of life, to build one another up. If we tear down someone, you're going to reap that. You'll be torn down. And if you build them up, then the Lord will build us up. Verse 11 and 12 again, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Those, the the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? There, there's something about our old nature that loves to hear gossip and slander. And we have to be very careful to avoid this, both of, of letting it come from our own lips or participating with someone else who, who begins to speak against someone. And it's often wrapped in a cloak of caring. You know, for example, 
um, I have something I need to share with you so you can pray for this brother. Well, first you should think, if he was standing here, would I say it? And if you have hesitancy at all, don't say it. If you think you need to share it, why don't you ask that person, do you want me to share it with others so others can pray with you as well? Because if they haven't said, please, please do that, then you should refrain from doing it. James' point is that when we speak evil of a brother or sister, we put ourselves in the place of God, who is the righteous judge. And he's the only one who can see the heart of the individual who we're talking about. The only one who knows all the details of what they're going through. Speaking evil of someone violates the royal law to love one another. James has emphasized that we have to be doers of the word and not just hearers. But if we step into the role of judge, then we're no longer a doer. We've taken the role of judge. And there's only one lawgiver and judge, and you and I are not it. Amen? He's the final judge, and he can save or destroy because he knows what is best, and he has all power to do so. He knows the heart, whether it's hardened or whether it still has a chance to change. Would we presume to know if grace or judgment was needed? Think for a minute how presumptuous that is. It assumes that we know everything about that person that we can see their heart. James asks us, us a, a thought-provoking question. He asks, who are you to judge your neighbor? And it's very similar to the question that Paul asked the Romans, who are you to pass judgment on another man's servant? Do you believe that you have the discernment of God to tell others about your neighbor's heart? That is prideful. And yet, we're so often tempted to do just that. It's especially tempting when we feel we've been wronged by that person. We want to tell somebody else what that person put us through. I know I have certainly been guilty of that. And meditating on this passage really convicted me. Who am I to judge my neighbor who, by Jesus' definition, is anyone that I encounter? That's not being humble before God. When I do that, I'm asking for the same lack of grace to be shown to me. We all fall short of that royal law, the great commandment, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. So who are we to judge? We violate those two most important commands when we speak evil of someone made in God's image. And the fact that everyone does it is no excuse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that what you say is true is not an excuse. We're to demonstrate the difference God has made in our hearts. I was really blessed the other day when 
when someone, uh, we were sitting around a table and someone started to talk about somebody and a person spoke up and said, that person's not here, we shouldn't talk about them. This does not mean, however, that we never make a judgment regarding a person's behavior. Kent Hughes has a, a marvelous sermon on this passage. Sometimes I'm tempted just to read somebody else's sermon because they do such a fantastic job. And Kent Hughes was one, however, this is my own. But I will quote him here. He explains, it's the Christian's duty to exercise judgment. For example, we are to beware of false prophets. How can we determine a false prophet except by judging him against the standard of God's word? Likewise, we're told by their fruits, you will recognize them. Recognition hinges on careful judgment. We're to judge adultery, murder, lying, and theft as sins. And if anyone does these things, we must judge them as being sinful. Jesus said, stop judging by mere appearance, but make a right judgment. What the scriptures forbid is judgmentalism, a critical and censorous spirit that judges everyone and everything, seeking to run others down, end of quote. There are times when, when we must make a judgment, but even then, is it really necessary to tell others? Maybe you need to do so to protect someone but most of the time, it's unnecessary. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year and there, there and tra trade and make a profit. So during this period in history, Rome would encourage people to, um, to go out and be pioneers to start a town. And when they do so, they would get a tax break. And Rome would invest in the walls and some of the, the cities for the government and so forth. And the reason they would do that was for trade and to expand the empire and to, to, uh, to make it uh, easier for their armies to have different places to defend as they move in different directions. And Jews... Th saw this as a great advantage to make money. They don't have to pay taxes if they go. So Jews went, that's how part of the reason they got scattered so far is they were partaking in these programs. And when they had 10 men, they would make a synagogue in that town. And the synagogue then would declare that there was one true God creator. It also could be that James is speaking of trading from city to city although he says it's a year there. Jews would notice the difference in prices in different regions and, and they would buy things in one region and then transport them to a place where they were more valuable and make a profit. So James is addressing this tendency to make plans to become wealthy without acknowledging God and boasting in their own ability to do so. He's addressing our prideful way of forecasting what we will make of our life as if we were the ones in control. 
It's the presumption that we are masters of our own life. So that we need to do no more than decide, and lo and behold, it's going to happen just like that. That, that kind of life keeps God in a Sunday box and pursues our own desires Monday through Saturday. The redeemed should know that our lives are in God's hands, not ours. We need to be aware of the possibility that he can call us home at any time. And that'll keep us from being overly focused on the temporal. Spurgeon said, there are two great certainties about things that will come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is we do not. When life's uncertainties present something you never expected, where you place your trust will make all the difference in how you face it. If you must trust in yourself, you'll probably panic, you'll probably be full of anxiety and start thinking how you're going to rescue yourself from the situation. If you must, if you do trust in God, then you can be at peace and seek his direction and know he's allowed it for your good. Moyer writes, it's all so ordinary. Indeed, it's so natural, but that's exactly the point. When James exposes the blemish of our presumptuousness, he exposes something which is an unrecognized claim of our hearts. We speak to ourselves as if life were our, our right, as if our choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make a success of things, as if getting on, making money, doing well were life's sole objective. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow brings. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The idea that life was a vapor or a shadow was a, a frequent figure of speech in the Old Testament. It comes up again and again, especially the word shadow. What will happen tomorrow? Only God knows. Everything can change in an instant. Wars, health, relationships, theft, inflation, accidents are just a few of the things that can suddenly change the course of our life. Now, we don't need to live in fear because we know the promise of Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. But we do need to understand that tomorrow may be very different. And today, what if Christ returned tomorrow? Am I ready to see him face to face? Have I forgiven those who sinned against me? Am I still clinging to some behavior I know that I should change? Would I have regrets? Or am I, am I looking forward with expectation knowing that I'm right with God, that I've done my best for his glory, that my conscience is clear. 
I imagine personally, my greatest regret before he wipes the tears from my eyes is going to be that I didn't do more for God, for his glory, at his leading, of course. Sadly, so many American Christians live in pursuit of the American dream without seeking God's will for their lives. They don't seek God about their purposes, their vocation, their future spouse, their occupation, the church they should attend, or how much they should give and where they should give it. So many people declare that Jesus is Lord of their lives, but they never ask him what his will is for them. And life flies by, and in the end, they find that all they worked for is just fuel for a fire. Life is so brief, the years fly by. So many of my friends and loved ones are already with Jesus on the wall there by the door is um, a picture of Brother G.V. Matai's memorial service that took place yesterday. Ray Crow, who used to lead our music, is now in glory. And Gloria, who very few of you know because she led our worship about 20 years ago. She just died of cancer. Some of you had a spouse go on to glory this year. It just, it doesn't matter how young or old we are. We need to be ready. Life's like that vapor from your tea kettle or the mist you exhale on a cold winter day. You see it vanish so quickly. That's the brevity of our life. Here one moment and gone the next. Are you, are you using this short time for God's glory? Are you ready to stand before God? Are you so wrapped up in future plans that your focus is just the here and now? Again, we see James use one of Jesus' themes. As all the way through James, we keep seeing how James is bringing out a parable of Jesus or something Jesus said and, and kind of abbreviating it. Jesus told the parable of the rich man who had a great harvest. He said he would build more barns and store it all up, and then he's going to kick back and just enjoy the rest of his life. But Jesus called him a fool because that night he would die. Maybe it was a heart attack, an aneurysm, a thief. It really doesn't matter the means. His time on earth was done. He had only lived for himself and his own pleasure. He had not thought of eternity or of God who had blessed him. His whole focus was on pleasure, not on his laborers, not on the poor, nor of God his creator. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now this is more than just tacking on the phrase at the end of your plans. It's acknowledging that God is the one who holds our life in his hands and he may have a very different plan from ours. He may call us home tomorrow. Or maybe he'll direct us on a path that we couldn't imagine. 
or he may do something much greater than we imagine. He often does more than we dream, but not always in the way we dream. Regarding the thought that we can do as we please, a, a commentator named Guzik writes, this boastful arrogance is the essence of sin, a proud independence, the root of all sin, as was the case with Lucifer and Adam. The point is that we serve a loving God who predestines our lives. Now, I don't understand how he predestined our life and yet he gives us free choice, but I know he does. Nor do I pretend to understand the path he takes us down, but we should all acknowledge that he put us where we are at the time we are so that we might be drawn to him. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. He writes, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him yet he's actually not far from each one of us. We're dependent on God. That is the humble reality of our condition. James has given us three reasons not to be cocky about our plans. The first is we're ignorant regarding what tomorrow holds. The second, our lives are brief, like a vapor. And finally, we are entirely dependent on God. Paul is telling us in Acts passage that God is involved in the intimate details of all of our lives. He allows things and ordains things to come into our lives to draw us to himself. And we must realize that he's a loving God and sees our situations as his divine opportunity to draw us to himself. Whether we see it as good or bad, God sees it as necessary to bring us into a deeper relationship with him. When we do not see life in that way, we stress out, we're miserable, we blame God for what we consider to be bad. And that only deepens the trial we're enduring. When we do see our situation as a part of God's design, then we look for what we're to learn in it and how we might draw closer to him through it. The Puritans um, would often, when they wrote, they would often, even in conversation, they would add to the end of any future plan or suggestion, Deo Volente, Latin for God willing. And in fact, it became so frequent that at the end of their letters, they would always put DV, an abbreviation for Deo Volente, meaning all of this that I've written, of course, is up to God. It became such a common expression that they'd use that abbreviation. It's holding the continual attitude that our life is in God's hands to do with as he wills. Drawing again from Motier, he, he writes, to be sure the words, if the Lord wills, can be a protective superstition but they can also be the sweetest 
and most comfortable reassurance to a humble and trustful spirit. Let me read that again. Tacking on, if the Lord wills, can be a protective superstition, but they can also be the sweetest and most comfortable reassurance to a humble and trustful spirit. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's not a sin to look ahead and plan, but when we're so cocky as to say the plan will happen just as we think, we're forgetting that everything is in God's hands. James calls this faith in oneself arrogance. And that word that we get that's translated from the Greek here as arrogance is was used of uh, the traveling snake oil salesman, you know, that had the cure for everything. And as soon as he sells it, he's out of town because it doesn't work. It's also translated vainglory, self-confidence, or the pride of life. It's evil not to accept that God is the one who's planned out your life before you were born. Psalm 139.16 tells us, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Did you know every day of your life is already written in the book? Not only is thinking we control our lives arrogant, but then when it doesn't turn out like we were sure it would, we tend to blame God for interfering in our lives. His so-called interference is for our good. What effect would your planned success have had on your soul had you carried it out? God knows, but we can only guess. God's path may be harder, but that's because he cares more about your eternal good than your temporal happiness. When we try to bring glory to ourselves, we're blessed to hit roadblocks and to be reminded that all glory belongs to God. If the business we plan is with the heart to bring glory to God, that's a different matter. But so often our hearts deceive us. We must discern if the plan is God's direction or is an attempt to satisfy our old nature's desires. When God is our only desire, whether he ordains life or death, ease or pain, it's all equal, for we know that it comes from his loving hand. Seeing that our growing desire is to live for God's glory is a sign of spiritual growth. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We know our lives are to bring glory to God. We know we should build one another up and not tear others down. James' maxim here is that following his warnings, that, uh, that followed the warnings he'd just given us about not speaking evil or not speaking boastfully about our plans, but that don't look to God, knowing we should not, and yet that we do it anyway, is sin. We know God wants to give to a need that he puts on our heart, But 
we refuse to give. We know we should spend time with the person who needs encouragement, but we have other plans. We know we should build one another up and not tear each other down, but we make excuses and ignore God's commands. We know we should not boast about our plans, but we yield to the pride of life and do so anyway. These are what we call sins of omission, not doing what we should do. This verse is is a great one to memorize because it'll help us to accept the opportunities that God puts before us. It will be the voice of the Holy Spirit helping us to live as we should in obedience to God. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We will be laying up our treasure In heaven, God blesses the generous giver. He calls us to a life of generosity that he exemplified. In Luke 12, 41 to 48, Jesus taught a very similar message. And again, here's James uh, elaborating on what Jesus said. Jesus' parable was of a master who went on a journey and left the care of his house to his servants. Jesus knew that he was going away for a long time, similar to this story, and that he was going to leave the church to overseers, also known as elders. The ones in the parable took advantage of their position. They abused their fellow servants. They ransacked the food storage to eat and drink the master's food. And the master suddenly returned and dealt severely with them. Jesus summed it up in verse Luke 12, 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. The more we know, the more we're accountable for. James' message throughout this letter is a call to action, to live out the faith that we profess. He points to our weaknesses so that we might let God transform us. He calls us to do what we know we should be doing. Compared to eternity, this life and its opportunities to glorify God, to lay up our treasure in heaven, he says, is like a vapor. Some people work as hard as they can so they can retire early. They carefully invest, work overtime, watch for opportunities to make money, all for the hope of a carefree retirement. They're like that man who filled his barns But what if they knew eternity is incomparably longer than retirement in this short life? What if we realize that God loves us so much that he wants us to invest these short lives for his glory and our eternal good? Should we not be even more eager to prepare for eternity than that person who labors for a carefree retirement? Our reward is infinitely greater than his. It's good to provide for your own 
so you'll not be dependent on others. But when that supersedes our preparation for eternity, our priorities are misplaced. May God teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Said the psalmist in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days. In other words, to realize how brief our life is so that we may live a wise life. Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll bring the benediction.